Welcome to Talking Heads on USA Global TV, starring the one and only wonderful Dr. Jacqueline. It's a prestigious place where world-class influencers and experts meet, and where you'll find the most trusted advisors and coaches for all things in life and business. Visit usaglobaltv.com to sign up for our newsletter, get the value you need, and be first in line to learn about events and giveaways and other valuable content. Connect with us. Email Dr. Jacqueline at usaglobaltv.com to talk about how you can become part of USA Global TV. That's USA Global TV, where the doctor is always in. Hello, everyone, and welcome, or hopefully it's welcome back to USA Global TV and radio. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Kerbeck, and our show today is the Film and Music Show. And for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, we're just so glad that you're here. And we are celebrating six months, our six-month anniversary, as we rolled out our platform back on January the 10th. At the time, we had 15 shows. Now we have 28, and we are on overall 20 some plus platform. So I'm just so grateful to each and every one of you. A quick announcement before we get to the show is we start a new show next week. It's called Rapping with Dr. Jacqueline, a show about nothing. That's right. Nothing. What does that mean? My first show was Rapping with Dr. Jacqueline. I had it trademarked and I thought, let me bring it out of the archives and just have a virtual conversation with people about anything they want to talk about. So anywhere you are in the world, whoever you are, you're welcome to book in for that show. There's no agenda. We'll just sit and have a chat like two friends sitting in a living room. Okay, let's get on to the show. My co-host today has brought a fabulous guest and she herself is amazing. This woman has done so much. She has helped me in so many ways. She saw something in me in terms of my voice, and she just unlocked the feminine side of me that's been put away. It's all the masculine energy. She is an international award-winning singer, songwriter. She is a novelist. She is a vocal coach, and she is the facilitator of the power of listening courses that we offer together to help people really get in touch with themselves, really understand how to respect each other and respect this beautiful planet and all of the lovely creatures here on the planet. So before we bring her out, I'm going to spotlight her by playing one of her music videos. It's Madeline Chan and follow love and then we'll bring out our special guest. Take a look. What you give me is just not enough I need a love to take me higher And higher And higher Every step I take I feel more awake Getting closer now I feel so alive Stopping me This is how I live Ever closer now Just follow love Follow me, just follow love. 
Oh, that was a beautiful intro. Jacqueline is, oh my gosh, much love, much love. Much love to you, my dear sister. You are incredible. So I'm going to spotlight you and share a little bit with our audience about some of your work. And then if you would introduce our fabulous guest, Phil Strongman, and how you two know each other. Okay. Yeah, um, right. So I'm an award singing songwriter. Uh, I've been singing for uh, a few, two and a half decades at least. Um, and I help people to awaken a voice within them, a singing voice, a speaking voice, the voice that is the voice that uh, normally does not, is not expressed. And it changes your life. And um, I and I do the Power of Listening courses um, with Dr. Jacqueline. And um, I write songs and um Dr. Jacqueline and I have, have written a song, which Dr. Jacqueline is going to release it. Um, and I just love life. I just love nature. And I just love creative hearts. I am a lover of creativity, creative hearts. If the heart is there, I am there. Wow, Madeline. Woo! <laughs> Fantastic. All right, before oh, yeah. we bring... You're going to introduce Phil. Before you bring him out, I just want to show one thing. This is a brand new course that you wrote, you creative goddess, you. And we are offering this now for people, heart gratification, male and female energies. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, basically, heart gratification is more about um, looking at what you truly resonate and emanate, what you feel really good about, what makes you feel your heart open rather than having anxiety and doubt. Um, male and female energy is about the representation of not gender, but the male energy, what it represents as far as like intuition, thought, an idea is that which is actioned. And then that's almost nurtured and, and cared for and brought out in a loving way is the female energy. So it's, you have to go on the course and then people will get it. <laughs> it can't just be explained in a couple of seconds, <laughs> but they should, because it will change our lives completely. Very true. Um, backstage, we have Phil Strongman and you brought him to this platform. He's accomplished so much around the world and he still is. We were talking backstage about some of the things he's doing at Ukraine. Tell us how you know the gentleman. Oh, I know Phil from um, going to a party, a record label party, part of the industry. And uh, the owner of that particular building um, said to me because I didn't know anybody because my boyfriend at the time was really ill so he said why don't you go and I went oh, okay I'll go so I went and then uh, this uh, owner of the building uh, came up to me and said um, you got to meet Phil I looked up and saw this six foot guy towering above me and he says Phil will look after you and so that's how I met Phil and it just so happened that I was going to Malta, which it just so happened that Phil had very strong connections in Malta, which we will reveal as we go along in the story. So that's how I met Phil. And we've stayed friends ever since. And um, I'm just an, an, a fan and admirer 
and a lover of his work. Um, I totally love John Lennon, so I was just so, Phil has written John Lennon FBI files. Um, oh my gosh, this connection, it's, it's so, so synchronicity how we met and then he came to Malta. Anyway, I will bring him out. Here he is, film director, novelist, um, script, uh, script writer. Um, my goodness, this man is producer. He's just, he's amazing. I'm producer, yeah, and film director, filmmaker. Here he is. Welcome, Phil filmmaker. Strongman, hello. How are you? Hey, Hi. Phil. Again, Maddie, nice to meet you, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> nice to meet you as well. How accurate was Madeline's recounting of how you met? It was pretty accurate. Yeah, there was a friend of mine, Guy Davis, that had this big uh, party for record company guys. And he said, um, look after Maddie. She doesn't know anyone here. So we started talking. I talked about a friend of mine, Dave Goodman, that did the first solar soundstage at Glastonbury and also... He toured with Michael Jackson, the Jackson 5 in the 70s. He produced the early stuff by the Sex Pistols. He recorded different bands. Um, amazing character and a, and a lovely guy. And him and his uh, wife, Kathy, were then living in Malta. So it was kind of, as Maddie said, it was really synchronistic when she said, well, I'm going to Malta next week. And I said, well, there's two guys you've got to meet. They're lovely people and they deal with music as you do. So you'll get on. And of course they did. Yeah. And Phil, you've accomplished so much across so many different creative nuances, I would say. What's your backstory? How did you get involved in this creative world as, as an artist? It's, it's a strange one because I sort of, I was in school till I was 17 and then I stayed on for a little bit. They tolerated me, but I didn't really finish. I got a couple of A-levels, but I didn't really finish. But by the time I was 17, I'd wandered into this shop that was a basement on the King's Road, Acme Attractions. And they were the sort of, at the time, the big rivals to Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren in terms of sort of alternative street fashion. And I started designing T-shirts for them. So it was, it was kind of funny at school. They wouldn't let me take art O-level, but I had T-shirts selling on the King's Road. Um, but that got me into, I suppose, a creative thing, you know, where you, you scribble something and, and people that are much older than you take it seriously. Then you think, oh, maybe I can design stuff. Maybe I can do this. And um, that led me on a long, strange path of different different subjects. And I didn't get into writing books till I was in my 40s, really. Before that, I, did, um, I got into film because... Um, Alex Cox, who did a couple of classic sort of uh, cult movies like Repo Man, he was in a bar in London once and a cameraman I knew said, oh, you should meet Alex Cox. It will be great. You know, you get on, give him some of your ideas. I didn't really have too many script ideas because I hadn't really written any scripts at that point. So, but I went over to Alex and started talking and he said, well, what ideas have you got? You know, Marcus says you've got ideas. And I said, well, I was thinking about signing with Pirate, Pirate Radio. And he said, oh, that's being done. A couple of people are doing that. It will take years, but it's being done. Anything else? And behind him was a poster for Romeo and Juliet. So I said, yeah, Romeo and Juliet, but it's set in South America, like El Salvador, where all the trouble is, and this and that. And he was like, oh, that's amazing. Bring me a script on. Bring me the script on Monday, and we'll run with it. So I had to spend an entire weekend writing this script from scratch. Um, 
which was kind of hell. I didn't sleep for 48 hours, but but I did it. And he kind of optioned it. I got a couple of thousand dollars. And ever since then, I, you know, being involved in film and then later on books. What an incredible story. Wow. Now, yes. what's involved in writing a script? I've never done one for people who don't know what, what do you have to know or do and how does it present itself? I'm probably a bit of a freak in that one in that I never did any of those things you see online books like learn script writing in a day. Um, I never went to university. I never did any of that stuff. I sort of learned things off friends. A friend of mine who died last year, David Jury, he kind of was a great director for British TV. He did a couple of things in, in Hollywood as well with uh, Jennifer Beals and Gene Hackman. Um, the movie uh, Split Decision, and he worked here with like Helen Mirren and Ray Winston and loads of those guys. He was a great drama director. He kind of fell out of fashion, unfortunately, but he was great. And he was a sort of a, a bit of a guide. But I just tended to sort of write things, and occasionally I'd show them to him, and he would like rip it in half and go, it's rubbish, that should be there, that should be there. It was a kind of a steep learning curve but it was good because it was coming from a friend that you kind of respected that you knew had this great knowledge um and so that was my kind of unofficial film course really so um and now i just often just think of interesting scenes and then see if i can link them but um the funny thing is it's always easier writing a book though it takes longer because with a book you can make clear what people are thinking what characters are thinking you can just write it down and you can narrate so easily with a book with a screenplay you have to imply it you know the things that can't be said out loud actors you know you make notes you give them that job of trying to promote it but um it's a difficult one writing a book is easier it just takes longer fascinating thank you so much we have a comment from someone Fantastic interview. Well done, Dr. Jacqueline and Dr. Madeline Chan. So proud of both of you. Keep shining bright and obviously. Oh, thank you so much. I don't know who it is. You're probably in our private group on Facebook, but thank you for watching and commenting. Madeline? I'm just in aura. I mean, I've known Phil for so long. It feels so strange that to ask questions. But I didn't know that you started off doing T-shirt printing. Um, I wanted to ask about... Um, your book cocaine mm. did, were you actually in the music business did you actually work yeah, I was for a record in, company i was working for vox which is like which was a big music magazine here for a time they were selling like 130,000 a month which is big in england it's like maybe half a million readers and i went a couple of times to radio stations and once I went with this PR girl who was very young, 19, and she didn't know the score, and she gave this guy this CD by a sort of new artist. She was representing a very small music label. So that was really great. And the guy looked at it. It had a sort of see-through case, and the spine was see-through. And the guy said, there's nothing here. And she was like, I don't understand. Look, there's the CD. And he, he said, yeah, I can see the disc, but there's nothing here. And then someone said to me later in a bar, oh, you know those guys, they always want cocaine or cash if they're going to play anything by an unknown, a small label. And that's how it works, you know, because they get regular bribes from the big labels. That's how it works. Like half the radio stations in Britain are like that, and probably in the States and Europe as well. This is how the big labels 
keep out small labels and new artists. And I was like, wow, I never knew that. And I didn't want to do a sort of tabloid exposure, expose thing. I just thought this is not generally known by the public and it should be. And I think the best way would be to put it in fiction because fancying myself as a writer, I thought I can write this. And the book did okay. I mean, it sold 30,000 copies. It got reviewed. Um, lots of um, industry people lined up to slag it off and say it's nonsense. None of this is true. But that only sort of added to the controversy. So it was yeah, it was kind of nice. But that's that's how that got started. Wow, that's amazing. Thanks, Phil. 30,000 copies. That. I think that's it's pretty darn good. Very impressive. <laughs> very it was the day that it was like fifteen pounds a book, so it was a big deal. But officially, it's like twenty-two thousand, which is again something else I didn't realize. In that book companies, especially in England, they tend to be gentlemen, this viscount, this and lady that, and people that have been very expensively educated. But they're as corrupt as music labels, where you don't get unless you're J.K. Rowling or unless you're Danielle Steele. You don't get, you never get the full amount. I mean, I was told by like three people there, it sold over 30,000 and you get the official figures, 21. And I kind of then realized that it was a bit like the music industry because they had a thing here when it was all CDs and vinyl. And I'm sh pretty sure it went on in the States and Canada as well, a thing called Midnight Pressing, where record had sold a million officially, but really it was like one and a half million. The extra four, 500,000 copies had been pressed after hours so the artists never saw the royalties the producers never saw the royalties but the record companies did they were they had a way of wrangling it and i didn't realize that book publishing was like that but um it was and maybe still is i haven't dealt with a big publisher for a couple of years now but i suspect that in many cases they're still doing that thing of not giving you the full sales but hey um i was i was glad i got a few thousand and I think the story got out there, whether the industry wanted it out there or not, the story got out there. But speaking of music, just to backtrack, that, that, um, that song's great. Madeline, Madeline's always had this amazing voice. And I just, Thank you. Oh, thanks. Well, it was Cathy, Cathy Manuel that helped me, the late Cathy Manuel, which we have a divine connection, myself, Phil, and Hiroki, Japanese composer. You know, we, we all... We all connect with Kathy. Kathy was just this rock. She was just, oh my gosh, she, her heart was. Honestly, Dr. Jacqueline, if you would have known Kathy, you would have just totally resonated with her. She was just so giving, a talented musician, and just, just such a quirky uh, personality. And um, you know, she helped me with like with 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 my. With my uh, with my singing, with my bringing my voice out, but at the same time, I got to meet you know the Phil the way that you know I went to Malta, met Kathy, and then with Phil, and the whole thing is just synchronicity in its yeah. in its yeah. yeah. And the thing is, the year before, um, uh, Phil, you were in Malta recording with uh, Dave Goodman. Yeah, yeah. Before yeah. I met Kathy, and it was Dave Goodman's spirit that came to me, and after he died, that came to meet to meet Kathy. It's a strange but true story. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that isn't that strange? That's so strange. So that's how we. That's how the magic of of divine intervention from people from another 
on uh, who have gone, their spirit came through and connected this. So it's very special. But um, yeah, and 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 Phil's done John Lennon and FBI Files as well. Did you notice that? Oh my yeah, gosh! Tell us more about that. Oh, tell us about John Lennon and FBI well, Files. The John Lennon book that I'm proudest of is is the last one, which is still kind of selling on the Loom Books, L-U-M-E. They're an e-book company. It's kind of on Amazon. And that's called John Lennon Lifetimes and Assassination, because that's like an extension of the John Lennon and the FBI Files book. And again, I mean, this isn't really spiritual, but it's strange. Um, when I was first trying to get the deal on this John Lennon Lifetimes and Assassination, I was listening to um, the John Lennon bootlegs, the sessions with Phil Spector, the rock and roll sessions. Most of it hadn't come out at that point. And at like three in the morning, I was wondering, do I approach this company in Liverpool who eventually did that, the book? And I really wasn't sure because they weren't too big and I didn't think they could promote it outside of like the north of England. And then um, suddenly this song stopped. I was listening to on headphones and John Lennon says, Phil, I'm changing. I'm going to change your future. And of course, he was talking to Phil Spector. But the fact that I'm called Phil when he said that just really made me think, yeah, I have to go for this deal. And I did. It wasn't a vast amount of money, but it got the book out. And I think that book, John Lennon, Lifetimes and Assassination, did resonate. Um, before it became an ebook, it was going for like $900 on eBay. I think it, we, I went really deep into all the different things around his life and the assassination and other things about him that sort of possible links with other assassinations that sort of define his time, the 60s and the early 70s. And I think it kind of, it struck a chord. And the fact that it, it, it sells a few hundred a month now on e, on, as an e-book is kind of, um, it's nice. It kind of shows that it kind of cuts through. And it kind of started with me in this sort of dream state, listening to this, this recording when, you know, John Lennon said, Phil, I'm going to change your future even though he was talking to Phil Spector. But, yeah, that's how that began. Wow, what a story. And each of these successes that you're sharing, it sounds like it was so easy, but it's not because many people are trying to accomplish one iota of what you've accomplished and, and are not able to do it. What, what do you think it is that separates you from most people? I think, I think a few times I was lucky. I think... That, I mean, with things like the cocaine book, it really, there was a price to pay. It kind of damaged me as a music journalist. I always kind of thought editors would be glad if one of their big freelance writers had a success talking about the music biz. And of course, they kind of didn't, they resented it. So it kind of cost me a bit. And the John Lennon book, I think, was just something I always wanted to write. I mean, I saw John Lennon and the Beatles as a kid live on TV, not live in concert, but all 60s British television was kind of live then for music. So, you know, of course, I was a huge fan. But, I mean, in between those things, all those projects, there's been dozens of rejections. There's been loads of things, just like a two-page idea that everyone loved, that friends loved, agents loved, when I still had an agent. And I would send stuff to book companies or to the agent to send on to book companies or film proposals and... Dozens and dozens got rejected. So, um, I mean, anyone out there, I think it's just that thing of um, you got to keep going and keep refining your act, keep polishing it. It's just like a diamond, put another face on it, polish it. 
And I think the key, especially with books and maybe some screenplays as well, is that they're not written, they're rewritten. You know, don't be afraid to go back and make, make it better or don't be afraid to take on new ideas or even old ideas that no one's looked at for 20, 30 years. Maybe they can be revived, you know. Don't try and reinvent the wheel every time and don't be afraid to rewrite because all 90% of books and screenplays haven't been written once. They've been written five, six, seven times. I think that's, that's what I'd say to people. That's great information. Thank you. We have some other comments. Great show. Thank you for watching and commenting. Amazing. Thank you to you. And great platform to showcase lives of renowned dignitaries who are inspiration for many. Thank you to our Facebook users. We appreciate you. So, Phil, we were talking backstage just briefly about uh, some work that you're doing in Ukraine. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, I um, I went there just after the, the Maidan revolution, which was when the Ukrainian students and eventually the entire country, the vast majority of the country, were trying to move closer to Europe. They were trying to get away from Russia. Russia's always been the big bully next door that dominated their culture, their music, their lives. And pro-Russian leaders were always, nearly always in power. There was an Orange Revolution in 2004, which seemed to have reduced that power, but it got, got swept away. And in 2014, there was this mass uprising against the president Yanukovych after that previous autumn, he had tried to move closer to Russia. He talked about getting closer to Western Europe, to joining the EU, to maybe having talks, but he was just basically doing that as a, as a tactic to try and get a bit more money and a bit more leverage with Putin, uh, the Russian dictator. Um, and when he went back on his word, he said, no, we're not going to get closer to Europe. We're going to do some deals with Russia. There was this mass uprising. Um, 100 students were shot dead, but they did force him from power. Um, that's when the real trouble with Russia started, because they occupied bits of the Donbass using separatists, terrorists, and various other people. And they occupied Crimea. And then for years, I mean, almost eight years, there was this slow war sort of very small frozen conflict, like a dozen people a week were dying. Um, and I thought it was sort of fascinating that something had started with a couple of Facebook posts and 200 students had brought down this, this favoured puppet of this Russian dictator that he couldn't keep hold of Ukraine because of something that started with a, a few hundred young idealists. And so in sort of 2016, 2017, um, I went out there um, there was a Polish guy, Kuba, Java, cameraman, that um, had met some artists there and said, oh, you should meet them, um, painters and musicians. And the, the initial idea was we we're going to do a 10-minute drama short, you know, um, and maybe just meet these guys and maybe we could do something about them in future. But the, the, the paintings, the artwork, the, mu the music, the whole scene was so good because I think people had this incredible energy. They were no longer Russia's puppet. They had their own voice. Um, it was so strong that we just thought, no, we have to film these guys. And the first couple of painters we met, Vlada Buchko and Victory Zav, the paintings were so good that we just thought, yeah, we've got to, we've got to cover this and interview these guys to see if they got something to say. And of course, as with most great artists and musicians, they did have something to say. And that led us to other people and other people. And that became this um, movie, Kiev Unbroken, 
which has only been seen by a few thousand people in, in Europe and Britain. But it has won awards, as I think I might mention to Maddie before. I mean, part of the problem was that um, I think with film festivals in Europe and to a lesser extent the States, people were afraid of offending Russia before this war. And now it's kind of, it's an out of date film in a way, but I think the relevance continues because that struggle continues. And in the film, the documentary, um, a lot of people in that did talk about the threat from Russia. The, 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 they weren't out of the woods. They thought they'd got their freedom, but Russia could still attack. And there was a worry that um, maybe the world wouldn't help Ukraine, the West, Britain, America would not help. I mean, thank God that we have, but um, that that worry was in there. So I think the film has relevance and uh, it was shown in the city hall of Kiev like uh, two and a half years ago, just before the whole COVID thing started. And there were like a thousand people there and TV channels. And it was kind of nice. It had that feedback that it kind of resonated with them. And people there were saying, this should be shown in every university in Ukraine you know, forever to capture this moment. And of course, I kind of think now that we did capture a moment and it's it's changed, you know, they're traumatized. You know, there's like 30,000 dead at least. There's 5 million spread around Europe, refugees. That the world we filmed doesn't really exist in exactly the same way anymore. Uh, the Kiev we went to, and you know, we went to Kharkiv, which has been hammered recently. And we went to Odessa, which is still getting rockets in. So we filmed a lot of places that kind of aren't necessarily there anymore. I mean, thank God so far, all the main people we interviewed are still okay. They're in different places. Some are still in Kiev, some are in Lviv, some are in France, Germany, Spain, they're spread around everywhere. But um, it does make me think that maybe we should do a follow-up when this is over. Um, but I, I don't know when that will be. Thanks, Phil. That was gonna be my question to you. Is there a way to update the documentary, you know, maybe in the beginning and have it reflect back on the work you've already done, or maybe it's a brand new documentary. I think I think it may be a brand new one that references and has clips from the first one. Like you see the, the guitarist talking then, you see him now. Um, uh, I, I think it would be impossible before there's some kind of ceasefire. Um, but when that happens, I would love to sort of update. And I think it would become another document of like um, a, a world that's gone, um, but still has living links here now, you know, and I think it is, I think it's undeniable now. It's like the biggest, biggest issue politically, geographically in the world now. And the fact that Russia is holding up all this grain that might yet starve half of Africa and maybe even parts of South America. This is a huge, huge issue. It is hugely important. And I think in my arrogance, I saw it coming because, you know, everyone I talked to in London and even members of the crew were saying, no, Russia will never attack. Putin's not that vicious. He's not that crazy. And I was like, he will. It might be next month, it might be next year, but he's not going to let a country become free and democratic next door to him because to the Russian people, it's a bad example. If they can change their president, why can't we? If their living standards can go up, why can't we? If they can eat organic food, why can't we? And I think he couldn't allow it to happen. And the fact that Ukrainians, 99% of them speak Russian and Ukrainian, the fact their TV stations, their radio stations could reach Western Russia he couldn't allow it to continue. And in that sense, you know, I was right. Obviously, he did a take. Um, I just wish I'd been wrong, but 
it's happened. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Madeline, I know you must have some questions. I just have uh, another one, which is, Phil, when you're filming things like what, what you described and, and then you're going to Ukraine and seeing the things that you're seeing, how do you take care of your mental health? I meditate a little bit. Um, sometimes um, I drink. Um, I had a really interesting crew with me, which was good. Um, there were lots of uh, arguments the first time we went because some of the guys wanted to still do the drama. And I was saying, no, this is drama. This is what's happening now. We have to capture this. So there were a few kind of rows. Um, I don't know. I suppose I've always had a bit of a, a spiritual belief and um, I think we were created and part of our job is to be creative. And even when we filmed an arms dump that the Russians had sabotaged and there was like $400 million worth of arms going off, a woman was killed quite close to us. Lots of people were injured. Um, and I just didn't ever think I was in real danger. I wasn't that worried. I'd be more worried when I was in street fights as a youth when people attacked me. Um, I wasn't that worried out there. I don't know I should have been. I just felt it was a big issue. And um, the guy I was with when we were at the arms dump, Balak Lyon, that the Russians had sabotaged and all these weapons were blowing up. He's a guy, he's got no spiritual whatever at all. Um, he's very non-New Age in every sense. Uh, Vlad Shuaya, very good photographer and cameraman. But um, afterwards he said, uh, you seem very certain we're going to be all right. I said, yeah. And he said, so was I. What you're trying to do is good. And so you will be all right. This will work. Um, which was kind of odd from someone that didn't believe in destiny or anything. But it was um, it was difficult, uh, but it was like um, an adventure. And I kept just thinking, I'm going to be all right. And there were quiet times which were useful. And I think that's useful for everyone, really. But, yeah, I think it was that. It was... Um, and the fact that I was working with, with friends, there's a certain camaraderie and, and friendship and a certain affection. And I think um, human contact, and sort of that warmth is so important. I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. No, you hit on a no, lot of good not. key points. Thank you. Madeline? Um, I was just basically on the same waveline of, of you, Dr. Shacklin. Basically, um, Phil, cool. when you're filming, uh, whether it's a, a documentary or for BBC or, you know, because you, what's the longest time that you've spent um, with the same production company? What's the longest time you've been? Hmm. I suppose I was writing for initial for a long time. With companies, there was um, a company called Jamaican Recordings, um, which dealt in film and they helped me do the McLaren Westwood movie. And that was almost two years. That was a marathon. And we did kind of end up, we succeeded in that we got it onto Sky TV in Britain. And that was, that was a long time. Um, but the good thing is that um, the guys that kind of run it, um, Frank Malone, Faith O'Neill, they're good guys, a good couple. And we became friends. So it wasn't like working. I've never worked for a huge corporation. Um, and whenever I've sort of dealt with them, it's always been kind of hard work. Um, but with them, it was it was it was kind of fine. Yeah, 
that that was the longest yeah, Jamaican recordings. So you have like a, a family atmosphere, but what happens? How do you deal with like, for example, people can get what do you call it, claustrophobic? You know, when you're as if you're stuck in a cupboard and you need the space. How do you deal with it mentally? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I suppose because I was something of a sort of high school dropout and I never went to university and I have spent time doing sometimes between times um, when I was like late teens, early twenties, I dug ditches. I worked on building science before that. I, you know, I sold shoes in a shoe shop um, and those jobs, even though they only lasted a few months, um, kind of depressing so i'm just always kind of grateful that i'm no longer stacking bricks on a building site or sitting in a shoe shop all day working for some huge company that doesn't really care about their staff i'm always kind of optimistic in that sense i'm lucky to be doing stuff that's usually interesting so um i mean the biggest problem with with kind of filming stuff like this without um i think actually across the board there was i saw one of the guys who made one of those born identity films the the born movies the big like 20 30 million dollar movies and he said people will never understand the humiliation you go through as a director and i instantly identified that i hadn't thought he had to deal with that. Of course, his angle was different to mine. His angle was when you've got a big star involved that's getting three, four, five million dollars. They have as much power as you, the director. They can give you problems. Unless they're an easygoing person, they can give you problems and they will. And you will have to eat a lot of humble pie and flatter them and try and bribe them artistically to get the job done. And, you know, I had the same thing, even with the documentaries, the same kind of problems in that people wanted to do other things and at a certain point if they had the connections to this person and that person they had a certain power over you so i think it's that i mean um people tend to think that directors are all powerful and maybe if you've got a cast of complete unknowns that are all like 21 22 23 that are just grateful to be there Maybe you kind of are all powerful, but when you're dealing with I don't know, a drama in a war zone or a documentary in a war zone, or when you're dealing in a big movie with big stars, you don't really have that much power. You're at the mercy of a lot of things. Um, and there's a certain stress there, you know, that it's sort of hitting you, but you kind of, I've always been aware that of um, creative tension can be kind of useful within limits. And I've been lucky in that most of the people I've, I've dealt with, I've filmed with, have are friends or have become friends. So I think that that kind of helped. That's, I never knew that. Thank you. That was a really a wealth of information there. That's, that's Phil, exactly. I'm wondering, yeah, we're coming to the end of the show already so fast. But Phil, I'm wondering what? what's next for you? What are some projects that you have coming up that you want to share with us? Well, I'm working on a sort of private eye book, sort of classic story, Midnight in L.A., because my brother lives there. And I was there for a few weeks, like five years ago, for a screening of uh, the McLaren Westwood movie. And um, I've just kind of finished that book, and I'm now sort of going through it again, and that will probably become a, either an e-book or something on Amazon, but I'll keep you guys informed. And also I'm trying to do um, 
currently working on a screenplay for a drama that I hope to start later this year, um, London Girl, just about um, Ukrainian refugee coming to London. Um, it just made sense to me knowing so many sort of Ukrainian singers and actors and musicians that that would be a story to rate as as a drama um, and very much a story of sort of today's world. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of in the point. Thank you. That's a lot. Thank you. Yeah, that's that a lot, lot actually. <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, Phil, I know this is a not a great question to ask at the end, but I'm wondering what's your perspective on the film industry when we look at at least here in the states traditionally you know people would go to a movie theater they go to the cinema and they would watch and and then people got the giant screen tvs and they didn't want to go so much and now we have streaming platforms and people can watch things at their leisure what do you think the future of the industry is some combination of all three something else i think cinemas will keep going um maybe they'll become less which is sad because i think it's great when you see a good film with a few hundred people, it's like going to a good gig, a concert, it's great. There's a certain vibe that you don't quite get at home, even if you're with two or three friends watching a widescreen TV, it's not quite the same. So it'll keep going, but I think it will become like um, like vinyl records have with the music industry. It'll be like 5% of the market, um, which is sad, but I, I don't think it will go. I think it will keep going. That's still the best way to see a great film is, is kind of the big screen. And I think um, people will want stories again. I think there's probably been a few too many Hollywood movies that are just basically sort of CGI video games. I think when Martin Scorsese criticized a lot of those sort of Avenger type, big $100 million things that are all effects, I think he was so right that I think that is a, that is a problem. These 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 aren't these aren't really films. They're video games. Um, it's a different thing. I think films should have a story and a really important human element. And I think that will keep going. And maybe like cinemas themselves, it, it will it will become smaller. But maybe like with vinyl, it will it will keep going and become fashionable again. Because I think vinyl sales are now bigger than CD sales, and and they're going up. So. Hopefully it will go that way. Interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, there is something special about going to a cinema. I just went to see Top Gun with four generations of my family. That was just really amazing. Uh, but there's also something nice about being able to watch something when you want. And I have noticed a lot of the, the big A-list celebrities here in the States, they did a number of streaming projects during the pandemic, right? Because that's really all that they could do. Um, so I think it's nice to have options. Yeah. Yeah, the choice is nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for being here and uh, continue the fabulous work that you're doing. I hope you'll come back and share with us when you're finished your book or any of your other projects. Jacqueline, thank you so much. And Maddie. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, I'm just, I, I, I find it amazing because I've known you for all these years and I didn't even know half some of the stuff that you've been talking about. It just really makes me feel just so. You can't have perfect. your money back. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> right. I'm going to spotlight you, Phil. And for people who are listening on the radio or they can't read the banner, what's the best way for people to reach out to get your books, to see your films? Um, John Lennon Lifetime's Assassination is still on Amazon. I think um, the Cocaine Book, uh, Metal Box, some of the other books are still on Amazon. Um, the films are now in a sort of hiatus. I think McLaren Westwood you can still get, but it's an expensive box set. 
the other films I'm still trying to get out there because uh, it's been a whole big problem with the Ukraine thing. But um, there are ways that I'm still working on that. But yeah, I'll, I'll come back and inform you guys as soon as I can. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to meet you. You have to come back on the show, Phil, for sure. Thank you. It'd be great to see you guys. Part two. <laughs> the follow-up, the pre The follow-up, that's it. The follow -up. Great, the follow-up. <laughs> All right, thank you, Phil. Take care. We look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, take care, guys. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Madeline, for bringing Phil to the platform. Yes, he's so interesting. So humble, yeah. too. Yeah, he is. I must admit, for for all that he's accomplished, and he like thirty thousand in sales in a book, and it's like, it's even though he's accomplished so much, he's still looking for that next deal, and it's like we all strive to become as big as a novelist, a big novelist like Phil. But as he was saying, you get the novelists that are striving that are good, and then you have like the Harry Potter's and Daniel Steele's and all these are that John Grisham, for example, that just just have the whole market, really. Yes, it's yeah. we know it's very hard to sell one copy of a book, let alone thirty thousand to me. But I loved what he brought up that he yeah. was he's pretty yeah. sure that he sold thirty thousand, but yet he was told it was twenty one thousand. That's what they paid him, yeah. I think, based on. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in in the music industry, in the uh, oh, as an author. I mean, we could go on and on. But Madeline, our next show is coming up, so I want to spotlight yeah. you and you share whatever you want with our audience. Um. Thank you, audience, for watching. Keep keep um, keep promoting. Keep uh, tuning in to the film and music show. Um, all artists out there, come on! We we you know forget about politics, Democrats. We need to promote the creative hearts because we are the creative hearts. That's who we are. And if you can find me, Madeline Carol Chan at gmail.com. I'm here always, and also with Dr. Jacqueline with Power of um, Elevated Listening as well. You'll find me, Dr. Madeline Chan, on uh, Facebook. That's my title. LinkedIn as well. Um, but, you know, please just support creatives because that's where we have a say and that's how we can change the world through the creative of our creative hearts. That's all I want to say, Dr. Jacqueline. Thank you, Madeline. And, and hello to Adam. Thank you for joining hey, us, Adam. Adam. Hey, nice to have you here. And Madeline, just very quickly, I just want to show our audience because the work that you're doing is really amazing. We have uh, we have even more than this now, but these are some of the courses that Madeline and I offer. I offer the Power of Listening Foundational Courses, Parts 1 and 2. That one I do myself. And then uh, Madeline does Part 3. We have Part 4, Part 4, 1 and 2. And then Part 5, here's Part 4. Yeah, and this is the that's the first part, and then yeah. this is the second part. Yeah, and you have to take both of them, part four. So it'll be offered as like a package, I'm sure, like part one, part two, or part four, because they have yes. to take both. Otherwise, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. And I can just share this with the audience. So I am producing the courses with Madeline, and she's having me do some exercises with her. And then I'm editing them and um, putting them up for sale. But 
to be part of that experience, it's I've learned so much and I'm interacting with Madeline all the time. I'm thinking, wow, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. And I'm learning more about myself as well. So I highly recommend we've priced the courses so that it's very reasonable for people to take them. And they're over on the Thinkific platform, which is um, drjacqueline.thinkific.com. But you can find out more on my website, drjacqueline.com. Madeline's around to speak with you about it. So uh, we're both here for you. All right, Madeline, yes. we're going to say goodbye for now. And the next show is coming up. It's The Wise Ones with Red O'Laughlin. And our guest is Tina Greenbaum. And then Talking Heads with Red O'Laughlin. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Phil. Thank Bye, you, Phil. audience. Thank you, Dr. Jacqueline. Much Thank love. You. Bye. What's up to you today? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>